Hello, and welcome to the Wild Rogue Podcast. I'm Karen from Wild Rogue, and in this series of podcasts, we'll be discussing episodes from our Wild Workers at Home YouTube series, the link to which can be found in the podcast description. This episode, we'll be discussing wildflowers, and joining me are William and Finbar from Wild Rogue, and Wild Rogue placement student, Rachel Hayden. It was great for me and Will because we actually, I think, have a fair amount of wildflowers in our home. What do you think, Will? Definitely, Karen. And I would say that's by design, right? Rather yeah. than laziness or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely by design because um, they're not that easy to get growing. I mean, you get, okay, the few like dandelions, yes. But if you want to get a good mix, it takes a little bit of work. Mm, yeah, I, I, I agree with you and disagree at the same time. And what I mean by that is, for the stuff that you want to try to get to grow yourself or your soul stuff, there's a bit of work there. But a lot of the really nice wildflowers I have around my property, they're here of their own accord. I'm just facilitating them by not getting rid of them. Um, so they might grow around the edges of the property or on the driveway. So I would say far more of the wildflowers that I have in my home, they're actually ones that they've come to me rather than me trying to get them to grow in the property. I think I have a little bit, I don't know, maybe my, the garden is a little bit more mature and more settled, but outside along the ditch, there is the most amazing array of wildflowers, bluebells, you know, growing in the ditch, loads of foxgloves. I don't have any of that growing in the garden, unless now I've brought it in and uh, planted it. Yeah, I suppose it depends on the history of your garden as well, to some extent. That it is like the garden of a house, so it's probably been disturbed or managed in a certain way over a long period of time. In that, at some point, those plants that are in the ditches outside were probably inside your garden and around the ditch inside your garden. But the lawn has been perfected, you know, prior to you going to live there. It's been fertilized, so not a lot of wildflowers. Or have a high tolerance for nitrogen, for example, unless it's nettles and things and that kind of thing. So it's about the mm -hmm. history of your garden. Yeah, I would say the lawn was probably well taken care of in the first few years because very little actually grows in it. It's remarkable. Um, I was looking at one earlier. There, they're actually just common daisies, and I certainly didn't. Uh, to grow them but uh on, on, on my driveway and parts of my driveway it, when we uh, moved to this house the driveway is made of gravel uh, limestone chippings mainly and so what i actually do is as the weeds grow in it some of them we pull you know it's just to do with ones we think look nice or not but the others what i've done is at a kind of high setting with the lawnmower they've been cutting parts of the driveway that we don't really drive on regularly with the cars and the daisies actually love that so there's lots of parts of the drive corners of it where you might park a car where there's a lot of little common daisies the one i mentioned there a second ago though is actually inside in the flower bed uh, just the corner of the flower bed common garden daisy keeping in and it's going there um side side with some lavender and if you didn't know it was a you didn't know that the daisy was a wild plant like you and you just visited Ireland and say you don't you weren't familiar with the type of plants we have in our gardens you bet it's a lovely one like would would you buy that in the garden center is what you might think so there it's it's funny like we we might think there's a lot of expertise involved with this but something like the common daisy can work one place and i think a lot of us certainly a plant like that we, we very much take it for granted it's true, and I suppose um, because of the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan, there's been a big impetus in community groups to plant wildflowers from seed, which is, I mean, it's a very valuable thing to do because a lot of them, you can buy particular mixes that have a high content of nectar for particular little pollinating plants. But in a lot of cases, what happens is that they end up just being vast weights of oxide daisy after a few years. And I was just doing some field work today and I was coming home and I'd go through towns and see these vast areas of oxide daisy that were planted. And when you come out of the towns, all along the ditches, growing perfectly naturally, are huge swathes of 
oxeye daisy. Uh, so people are planting these plants in urban areas because they're beautiful, when in fact they're perfectly natural native plants that are in the, the countryside anyway. Yeah, I have to say about the, the oxide daisies, that, we'd see them growing along the, the ditches and fell in love with them, absolutely wanted to get them in the garden, planted them from seed, and now I am putting them out of every bed. I think they are great for filling up a gap, but wow, they take over. They're lovely now. They're an absolute spray of color. They look absolutely gorgeous, but yeah, if I don't keep on top of them, that's all, I, all I'll have. Yeah, and actually... Um so we're in early June now, and it was last week, maybe, or the week before, myself and Finbar were, were back out in the outdoor jobs at Wildwork because you know, coronavirus restrictions are being lifted up. And I was driving to Middleton. And Rachel, you might have seen this now as well if you've been driving around the, the Jack Lynch Tunnel, the Dunkettle Roundabout. But there's, there's managed lawn on the, in a roundabout uh, by the Jack Lynch Tunnel um, it's over on the, I guess, the Glanmire or the Dublin side of the Jack Lynch Tunnel. If you're coming from Cork, going to, to, to Middleton. And this area of lawn hadn't been, hasn't been cut at all. So now there's a, there's a, it's more meadow now, certainly, than lawn. But it's, it's populated with loads of oxeye daisies. Um, I'm not sure what subspecies it might be, but they're only, they're not very tall ones, but have it was one of the nicest things I've seen in my travels around Cork once I kind of started seeing stuff after, you know, after lockdown easing. Did you guys see that? Did you see that, Rachel? I have. I've actually just gone past there recently. Um, and it is, it's a nice just kind of pop of colour on the side of the road. Um, and it's nice that they've just kind of left it. I know they're doing a bit of construction on the roundabout. So I feel like they're not, I don't know if it's, if it is the All Island Pollinator Plan, if they're, purposely leaving it grow out but yeah it's, it's lovely to see a bit of burst of color and a nice growth of wildflowers on the side of the road. Something I've tried to find out about oxide daisies is how good they are for insects. Does anyone know? It's not something I've been able to find out. Are they in the family Asteraceae? Yeah they are so it's like they've got thousands of hundreds mm. of flowers in the flower head. Um, so they will now, relative to other species, I don't know if there's a ranking of the best native or otherwise plant for nectar for species, but I suppose it depends. I mean, the, the, the Asteraceae, those, you know, your daisies, your dandelions, they have hundreds of flowers in each flower head. So they're a good source of nectar all in one place. Uh, but like particular species may have a requirement for a particular plant, like we know the orange tip butterflies particular to the the cuckoo flower whereas the the daisies asteraceae they seem to be a generalist plant that will satisfy loads of different species i know one thing about them that's i don't know what you say interesting uh a couple of years ago we were doing interviews in ccad for wild work i can't even remember what it was for but at the time there's there's a strip of wildflower seed that we've sown out the front. And like Finbar said there earlier, uh, it, it has actually become predominantly oxide daisies now, but there was lots of different species in it the first year. And as we managed it over time, gradually it's 90% of it is oxide daisies. And they were in full flower around the time of the interviews. So I said, wouldn't it be lovely? And it would be, you know, fitting with the theme of wild work. We should have some wildflowers inside in the interview room. And the interview's going well, but... You know, you want everything to be right for the people who come and, uh, and do an interview and make it a nice, comfortable setting. And all day long, I kept like getting this horrible smell. I was like, am I after standing on dog poop? Or is some, like maybe Ryan had stood in or something. I was like, what's going on? And I kept checking around for the smell and I couldn't find it. Then you'd be like, well, geez, was it the person we were interviewing? Or... <laughs> But yet, it, no matter who came in, the, the smell was still in the room and I couldn't place it for ages. And I was trying to figure it out, like this was going on for three or four more hours and no one said anything about the smell. And that's when I discovered, like, you know what the smell was, right? Oxide Any guesses? Oxide daisy. Really? Yeah. yeah, they absolutely... I didn't know they had quite a scent. Oh, they are disgusting, the smell of them. They look beautiful, but that's one thing. Do not bring them into your home. Because um, they are tasty. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Have you ever munched on a flower? They taste like artificial pineapple sweets. And I would never uh, suggest eating too many, but just one, a bit of a munch on them, yeah. But I'll go out and have a smell of them now as well. Yeah, not very good, but we won't hold that against them. Uh, speaking of the, the cuckoo flower, Fimbar, um, that is one I love to see. Never seen it around here. Is it more wet areas? It does, yeah. It's predominantly wetter areas that you'll find it in. Uh, wet grassland, generally, so riverbanks. It is, yeah, very much associated with wetter areas. Right, yeah, so probably not in the garden. I suppose it's just... No, I've, but having said that, I go for a walk. I walk around the cities, you know, just for exercise. And I've seen it growing in gardens, suburban gardens, say in Fair Hill on the north side of the city, Cathedral Road. I mean, this is like the city city. It'll pop up in gardens if it's shady areas, even slightly moist. Um, you'll find it. But it is it's indicative of wet grassland and wet woodlands. You'll usually find it there. But it can you know, like all plants, they're supposed to do what they're supposed to do, but they, mm. they don't know that. <laughs> Karen, one yes. of the things that, uh, that I learned about in, in this episode that we've done from you was that about the meadow sweet having the salicylic acid in it. And it's really funny the things that you think, geez, you should know that now. Um, because I, I'm familiar with salicylic acid it being, you know, it's referred to as nature's aspirin and when I first learned about it, it was it was in a bushcraft course I did before, and it was about it being in willow bark, the inner bark of of willow, and you can harvest it quite easily, and you can taste the inner bark, and it just it actually takes that dry, tangy taste that you get off of uh, an aspirin tablet. So um, when I heard it was about meadow sweet, I was like, really, wow! I was like, going, I wonder she could you could have even been mixed up with willow or. Anyway, I was looking it up, and first thing you find about Sweet, of course, is that like it is directly linked with aspirin. Uh, this is according to Wikipedia, anyway, and that this is where it was actually that the drug was derived that came through Meadowsweet. So Meadowsweet is is supposed to be the actual medical source for that particular drug, which I thought was really interesting, um, because um, oh yeah, I do love willow uh, and I love Meadowsweet. I don't know which one more. Love the smell of them, but meadowsweet, like it's a real appropriate name for a plant because it is definitely the opposite of oxide daisy in terms of how gorgeous it smells. Meadowsweet is sort of a derivation of what it was. It was mead sweet because it was used to sweeten. That's mead. right. Yeah, and this the smell isn't quite there now yet. It's a bit of a late summer smell. Um, so unconscious of anyone's going to listen to this podcast quite soon. Definitely want to keep your nose tuned in for coming up it is so beautiful and meadowsweet is used for making cordials and for um, champagnes and so on uh, very much like the way elderflower is and the scent I think they're quite similar um, the elderflower interestingly as I look out my, my window here from my recording room uh, elderflower is in full bloom right now so that's one to check out but meadowsweet is I don't I think the plant, I feel like it's a plant that very few people are aware of, that are that tuned into. And it's a plant of wet places, boggy ground, shall we say. Um, but it's it's wonderful. I don't know. I, I think I'm just kind of realizing it's one of my favorites out there, like uh, opening up to you here now in the podcast. But I don't know what I think of medicine. You probably don't like it at all. <laughs> you know, after watching the YouTube video, I have found myself smelling a lot more plants than I ever was going on my walks in the evening if I see something and I'm like oh is that elderflower I'll go up and I'll just smell it and <laughs> most of the time I'm wrong I'm still learning how to identify plants but yeah I'm just smelling every plant now I haven't gone to eating plants so much yet I'm a little bit cautious of that <laughs> yeah. yeah no no that's there's no harm <laughs> no it's it's a, it's a great way for identifying plants um I don't know it's it's in the, the ID books, isn't it, Fimbar? You know, one of the ways to identify a plant is to smell its leaves. One particular one that I use to, to teach people how to identify a plant when it's not our is with hedge woundwort. Um, Stachys sylvatica is the scientific name. Because once you see the shape of the leaf and you smell that smell, you'll know it forever. It's not a very nice smell, 
No. I don't think it's a very nice smell. Other people have said, oh, I don't mind it. That's quite nice. But it's a very distinctive smell. And the shape of the leaf is very distinctive. So you'll be able to identify that plant even without the flower. Um, so, so, yeah. It's not nice, Finbar, at all. I don't think either. The smell. It's not as bad as oxide daisy, you know. But uh, the smell isn't nice. And I mean, if I'm wrong, no, but it's square stemmed because it's somewhat related to mint plants too, yes. right? So it is in that family. And that's what I find. And going back on the smell is that you absolutely know it's not mint when you smell it because when you see it you could go oh it's it is minty looking and then of course you believe whatever you get the opposite of what you're hoping for with mint so it's a kind of lets you down but i'm sure it has its own special qualities that we don't is head wound short still around at the moment because i don't think i've i've ever smelt it yeah no, it's out now it's flower passed on this morning um yeah, it's definitely out. It's, it comes out early, so it comes into leaf early and it stays relatively late. But the, the, it's got a deep purple flower. It's quite distinctive, the flower as well. All right, want to try? And do you guys know, you know, that if a plant has wort in its name, it's that it's referring to its use? Wound wort and nipple yeah. wort. Yeah, yeah, so it's like wound wort. I mean, it might be something to do with wounds. Most likely, it, oh, might, right. it may be, yeah. Then, but then you have some, and you're like, "God, is it?" Like, there's butterwort, um, yellow wort. Ones away. Yellow wort. Jeez, uh, I'm not. Uh, my my brain is feeling like ragwort. Yep. Lousewort. Lousewort. Um. So, and they are all with the wort. Um, I'm forgetting now, but it is actually connected to. I I don't know. I I, I could be. There is definitely some sort of a use. Yeah, they um, all sort of had a they all sort of had a, a medical herbal use, like a really long running medical herbal use. But for something like um, ragwort, I tried to look up what it was used for, and I couldn't find anything. But the name has remained. So at one time, it probably was used for something medical. Yeah, but then it, the thing where you get confused is that it can the wort is also linked with. It's supposed to be liquid word. So it could just be that, that's another thing then, that it might just be a really, really old name. The plant might have been named a long, long time ago. Um, but then again, if it's butter, word, I don't know. It's, it's, and that's the thing about the names of these plants. Like um, some of us are caught up with whether we know the name or not. Jeez, I don't know the name of plants. I think I know the names of loads of plants, but there's way, way, way more plants I don't know the name of. And there's also a whole list of plants whereby at some stage I knew what they were called. And now when I see them, I'm like, oh, geez, what's that called again? I can't remember. But I think we get caught on the knowing of the name and maybe we don't ever stop and think, geez, why is it called that? What is the idea behind that name? And that is not just the English naming. It could be the Irish Latin, really interesting place, and um, actually, I think when you were talking about foxgloves, right? In, in it, or I, I could be wrong. We were definitely there was definitely reference to foxgloves. <laughs> you were going on about how much you were a fan of them, and again, right now, that's right. You were saying they grow in shady areas, and they're nice to have around the garden. And I was actually in a shady area of my sister's garden a few weeks ago, and she is a foxglove. And a lot of time when you see a foxglove in gardens, they're actually an ornamental variety that you can buy. Um, but this one, it struck me because it looked wild. And she said, oh, yeah, we got it in uh, Granger's or some garden centre. And sure enough, like the garden centre are quite clued in. They, had, they were kind of propagating wild plants there as well and selling them on to people, and, which is nice to see. But the foxglove, on the name of it, uh, I was out on the roads there with my daughter for a walk and I was like, do you know why it's called foxglove? And I mean, I think this is true now. You know, maybe I, maybe I, someone is just making it up or told me a long time ago, but you can pick the little flowers of the foxglove and you have to be careful to watch out there isn't any bumblebees in there because they love foxgloves. And you can pick off the little flowers and you can put them onto the tips of your fingers and you have a little pair of gloves and that's what I told her, like that the name Foxglove, that's where it's coming from. The foxes would collect the petals and put them on their fingers to have a pair of gloves. Have you ever heard that one? Where I'm from, the laneway down to the house is the ditches are full of foxglove. 
Um, so when we were younger, yeah, we used to check, see if there was any bees in them and then pluck them off and yeah, just put them on our fingers. And that was exactly the story that I was told when I was younger as well. Oh, cool. And did you do the popping, close it up and burst them? Yeah, and pop them. Yeah. Yep. So the thing about foxglove, right? Um, this is a bit now me putting two and two together. But the, so the digitalis, like it is a drug and it's used in heart medicine. And so, look, I'm not a doctor or an hour like this, but what I know of, of it is that the drug is meant to slow down heart rate. Um, but depending on how much of it you took, stop your heart too yeah. so there there are traditional like it this is almost like myths and folk tales aspects of it as well that it was used in poisons and i can't remember so i've read up about it as well that it's you know it's been used as a poison long ago to and there's even some famous deaths in european history at the at the hands of this plant foxglove but um going back to the bushcraft days so, and Finbar, you were talking about like flower ID, we could go by smell and you could also go what the flower looks like. But another one is leaves. And the, so this is the two and two together piece. So, um, you know, primroses, primroses have this beautiful, soft leaf about that, that if you were re if you were really in nature, go to the toilet, no, this is going back now to the earth. Uh, <laughs> to the oxidases and you had to find a leaf in nature that's better than any leaf out there to replace the toilet paper well it's a primrose leaf it's just so soft and velvety they're just unbelievable i'm not saying i've tested them out or anything now but if you take a look at a primrose leaf and you take a look at a foxglove leaf uh, you know you didn't you weren't that tuned into plants or you didn't see them that often you could mistake them they have a similar leaf it can be a similar size so i used to warn people in the past be like if you are looking for for toilet roll don't mistake your foxgloves with your primroses you know because one of the ways you can take medicine so i might be daft saying this now it mightn't ever actually happen but one of the ways you take medicine if you can't eat it is you use a suppository right yeah so um someone could or maybe someone has at some point in time used the foxglove as toilet paper and it might be a way that they take the digitalis into your system and it might be very good but i don't know that's me thinking going a bit on a bit of a psychological tangent there but i don't know it could be something to look into if there's anything in that sometime so did you ever hear that about foxgloves but people are using them as uh, as, as toilet no, roller otherwise you're, mis <laughs> you're mistaking them with primroses no, I haven't certainly done. Who was it? <laughs> Not someone, one to test anyway. No, someone definitely did a, these are the kind of leaves, you know, when everyone was rushing out for the toilet paper and, you know, toilet paper was going to be a commodity that you weren't going to get. There was definitely someone did a social media post of the best leaves for, for toilet paper. Yeah. I think the Doc, Doc came out the best. Yeah, Doc. Doc's a good one, yeah. It definitely is better, definitely better than grass. As for said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they teach children these things anymore. And no, who, they do not. Who, who knows? Who would have known that our topic would, would uh, our podcast would be so vulgar <laughs> in our first episode? But you immediately know, immediately to what, toilet humor. <laughs> but you know, a lot of what we do in wild work is about education, right? And um, I, I just told a story there earlier about my daughter and teaching her about the foxgloves and you know trying to engage children or adults in in plants is a good way to educate them rather than you know this is foxglove this is what mm -hmm. it looks like this is the color of the flower you know recite repeat after me so um in my experience and you guys might have experienced this too the whole topic of going to the toilet is a wonderful way to engage people in anything in nature because people think it's funny, they remember it. So, I mean, if you did want to be teaching your kids about wild plants or inspire them about them, the foxglove is such a great one because you've got the whole story of the foxgloves and that aspect of it, putting them on your fingers and then the, po the poison. And I forget those stories, but look them up and there's really interesting stories around the people who've been poisoned by foxglove. And then you can come full circle and make it all about poo. And it's such a great plant to engage people with and it's there's loads of it out there right now and 
No, it is it is one of the most pretty, uh, and it smells nice also. And I think another way to engage people is what Karen does is telling about what it used to be used to uh, for potentially in the past medicinal uses or as a source of food, that kind of thing. That's what people, particularly people who might be completely unfamiliar with the names of plants, they just see stuff growing around them and they don't know the names. They may know daisy and dandelion and that's about it. You know, as Will says, if you just bombard people with names, scientific names, even the, the common name, if you take them on a walk, you know, they'll just lose interest. If you talk about a few things and put them in context that people might be interested in, like their medicinal past, things like that, I, I think it, it's less off-putting for people and they might not completely just shut down and lose interest for sure. Or talk about food is another way. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you can eat, what you can use for medicine, I think that's becoming very something that people really want to know about. And I think particularly now, you know, this kind of idea that we're all locked down. I think, yeah, the walks that we're going to be hopefully doing before the end of the year, that's what people are really going to be interested in. What what could you use for the toilet paper when it all ran out? What you know, if if civilization collapses, what can we eat? And then you sneak a few, you know. And it's also good for bees. What about you, Rachel? Do you do much outreach work? Do you have you taken people on walks? I haven't, no. Well, in my undergraduate, I did placement with IRD in North Cork. So I oh, did lovely. go to schools um, at the time they're doing the Raptor Life Project. So it was promoting the work they were doing for um, habitat restoration for hen harriers. So I went to secondary school, primary school and a creche. And it was a very different level of experience for me. I didn't talk that much, um, except for the end when I was just engaging with the kids. But it really shocked me how much they knew as well about nature, as specifically around their area, Canturk and Newmarket. They really knew it. But going to the crash was something else altogether because kids, they just come out with anything. So it was like what you know what do you say how do you engage with them what do they understand and then you'd you know say something about um like a muscle and you're like they they are as old as your grandparents they're really old and then the kid will be like my granny's dead and you don't know what to say back so that's about the extent of my experience with um with the kind of engagement i did get to go out and talk to farmers as well because they were doing a lot of stuff with um keeping cattle out of waterways so I got to talk to a lot of farmers as well and it was really good but I haven't like given tours so much or walks all right so yeah that's a um, maybe another experience you want to get while you're in wild work yeah no it's definitely something I want to get into because when I was still in college um we were going out and we were looking at badger badger holes and the sets and I got to give a little bit of a talk. So I just listened to a podcast actually by um, Christian Nation. So I got to give a little talk and I was like, it's definitely something that I, I really enjoy trying to engage with people, but it's definitely a skill you need to develop as well over time. Absolutely. As, as Will was saying, you know, kind of having the stories and background to kind of engaging, not just giving people facts and names because that's not what they're going to remember. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a skill and um, gosh, wildflowers you could be i think learning for the rest of your life you know mm. names where they are what they are what they were used for the amount of books that i have now bought on the medicinal and herbal uses of wildflowers i, I don't know if i'll ever read them all but it just shows how much was written on them karen uh, you guys might know of it as well do you have a book called bartram's encyclopedia of herbal medicine no i don't think i have that one yeah i, I used to speak about it uh, good bit uh, probably thinking loads of people have it or know about it or I'm sure herbalists know about it but um, it, it's brilliant the book's brilliant but I remember when I was around 18 or 19 uh, in college there was a there was a workshop advertised this was outside of college now but it was called wandering through the weeds and this lady she ran this workshop in some hall it was way out in Mayo it was in County Mayo it was between Castlebar and Ackle, I forget the name of the place. But the workshop basically had two parts. The first bit was we went for a walk, just 
went outside the hall, the community hall, went for a walk less than 500 metres down the road, and she was just pointing out the different plants. That's ragwort, and that's useful for... Geez, I think she actually linked that with um, menstruation in women, um, as far as I know. And then that's, there, was, there was all these different plants, but we ended up collecting some sort of wild rose petals or something. And the second part of the workshop was whereby we learned how to make a hand cream. Uh, I wasn't that interested in that part, but to be fair, like I, I made a hand cream, like a, one that you could buy in a bloody well beauty store, like, and it smells so gorgeous. And so, but after it, it was like, as soon as we did the walk and we were only on five minutes and I was hooked on this concept of these uses of these wild plants. And there was just so many of them in the ditch. Like, it was unbelievable. But so sometime around then, I bought a, Bartram's Encyclopedia of Herbal Medicine. And that's what it is. It's an encyclopedia. It compiled loads of age-old information into it. But what was really cool was any time I found a new plant that I was interested in, you, you just all you needed was the name of the plant. And you look it up in the encyclopedia, and it would tell you the uses of it and how to use it. So it could be nettle, and then it would tell you that nettle is good for the blood, and you can take it this way and this, that way and make this tincture and that. And, it's a really, really cool book, Bartram's Encyclopedia of Herbal Medicine. But um, another book then that I got at the time was, uh, oh God, what's his name? The Food for Free, Richard Maybe. And it's a list of countryside plants that you can eat. Mm, classic. And he first produced it in like the 70s or something. But someone had shown me sorrel, field sorrel. And you know, it has a little arrow-shaped leaves. And... I taste it and it's lovely. It's like, you know, it tastes like Granny Smith apples to me. And it's meant to be really good for cooking with fish also, which I haven't tried yet. But um, so this is on the, you've got to kind of learn your stuff. But so shortly after the Wandering Through the Weeds workshop, um, around the time I got those two books as well, I went for a walk in the woods again up in Mayo. And I saw these gin- ginormous woods or leaves uh, they just looked delicious. They were much bigger than they normally are. And they had some kind of blotches on them as well. But they, were, they looked good. I didn't take any notice. So it, I was just out of the woods, out of the car, about to go for a walk in this woods. And I oh, sweet, lucky me, like, <laughs> sorrel right here. And I picked it up and took a bite out of this leaf. And all of a sudden, like, I mean, within a half a second, my mouth started burning up my whole mouth started burning up I just spat out the leaf and I had a bottle of water and I kept trying to rinse my mouth out and rinse my mouth out my mouth was on fire different now than chilies like a kind of a not a good experience sort of burn like it's definitely not a plant to be eating and uh, so that evening anyway I managed to rinse my mouth out and off with the home and um, I looked up my Richard Maybe book and this plant was in it not as food for free and a plant you should eat but it said, this plant is one that's known to all countryside children because they're taught about it from their p- parents from a young age. And it's called Aram Lily, or Lords and Ladies. And that's the leaf that I had eaten. And the only, you know, it, it was green, so was the sorrel, and it had the arrow shape. It was much bigger. But it's, you know, a highly toxic plant. You're not meant to eat at all. And um, I can't say I even learned the lesson, but it was a really interesting experience. But I guess what I was doing then... And I, feel, I think I still do it today. And you just kind of reminded me of it, Rachel, when you said you've started smelling plants lately. It's that, that lady that read the Wandering the Words uh, Weeds workshop, she just got me, you could say, essentially engaged in plants, wild plants that are growing, whether what they smell like, what they taste like, what they feel like, what you could do with them. Um, and then once you have that, when someone like sparks that off within you, lights that up, you get these little books that help you along the way, like Bartram's Encyclopedia or Food for Free or just loads of other ones. So I'm here to tell the tale anyway, luckily. Yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> it's probably something in the beginning of the book. Do not go around tasting things unless you are absolutely sure of what it is. Rule number one of the Forager's yeah, Guide. <laughs> That's why I'm very cautious about like taking a nibble out of any plants. Um, but when you were saying that this woman kind of incited this in you when I was in placement, there was two um, other students from 
literally IT and they were so good at just picking up a plant and eating it. Like we were out watching hen harriers, but not really watching hen harriers because we were looking at all the plants and they would pick up sorrel and they were like, eat this. And I was like, I, I don't want to eat that. And they were like, no, no, eat it. Um, so I did. And then they just pick up plants and they were telling me what they were. And um, one of the guys collected nettle because he was making nettle soup. Um, you know, it is, pretty normal to pick a plant and taste kind of taste some of the, the nectar from it but I clearly lost that over the years and they kind of brought it back and I was like oh yeah it's like we should be exploring and eating things but with a bit of caution yeah for sure you have to I think people talk about fungi but mm. it's true for plants as well you really have to know what you're picking yeah I do notice going out with um <laughs> with people on walks is they are very cautious about even if i'm absolutely sure i say look this is definitely this plant does anyone want to have it a go and very very few will but when i take my niece out she's now she is she's tasting everything and every time she comes for a visit she's like i want to go taste my favorite plant and she'll go out and pick something in the garden and taste it but then she has all these horrible allergies and i'm just waiting for the time when something will spark them off so it's a fine i'm yeah, yeah. i love telling people about eating things and what we're eating but I'm, I'm also very cautious about saying but um you know just make sure you know what it is but yeah i don't think people people are very cautious about doing it and that's something we've lost as a child you know from childhood i remember yeah trying everything as a child mm. always picking up and tasting something i you know visiting ireland i had something that tasted like that wonderful granny smith that wonderful bitter taste and it looked like a clover and I tried to find it. Every time I came back to Ireland, I was eating clovers and clovers were just like, no, they weren't tasting it. It was only a couple of years ago. I, I, I realized it was uh, sorrel, the, the woodland sorrel that looks like a little clover. And I think last year I actually found it in a woodland and I was able to taste it again. And yeah, that just took me back to that childhood. Finding that taste again. It was great. And that's actually, that's a good example of a safe one to teach people or to learn about that the only thing you can really confuse it with is clover and that like clover isn't an edible plant in that you wouldn't eat it but it doesn't taste nice but it doesn't do anything bad to you like you know it's not a toxic plant or anything but you know the one that i think is interesting is blackberries you know like everyone eats blackberries they think nothing of it and you're like but how do you know it's a blackberry you just do you know someone taught you like, so if you think about your relationship with blackberries, it can be, you can have that same sort of relationship with any other wild plant. Um, and, and your knowledge is always expanding, but there's, there's this common knowledge out there about plants as well. Like um, You've probably heard the one like, uh, don't eat red berries, right? Because they're poisonous, aren't they? Oh, That's what people... Well, there you go, Fimber. Raspberries, but also haws and the hawthorn tree. Uh, they're an edible red berry um, and I think it's sometimes this country this kind of common countryside knowledge is maybe some of it is not really you know that well thought out like that don't necessarily believe what you hear that red berries are are um, are poisonous or that black ones are safe you know because there are other oh, blackberries there's that plenty of blackberries that are not safe yeah. um, but you know I think we have it in us to be careful let's not be foolish maybe people like me are a little bit <laughs> foolish sometimes There's always one um like this story there like but um i don't know like you're I, I i know very few people that i don't know anyone who has ever luckily like you know gotten seriously ill or sick from wild plants of course people have like but it's nothing to be afraid of like it's something to go and try out and there's loads of safe ways to do it. You just have to be careful and don't do things like I did. What I'd be loath to do is then to point out plants that are particularly dangerous when I'm on a walk with people in case they take that home. And if it's growing near them, they'll, you know, completely obliterate it from wherever they live. Um, because that's it. it is, you know, you want people to be careful, but you don't want to be people to be overly frightened of nature. Hmm. Because there are poisonous plants, like there are poisonous fungi, berry. 
you don't want people to get hurt, but you don't want people to be afraid of nature. It's, it's trying to sort of strike that balance with you, I suppose. Finbar, you reminded me there, um, a few years back, we were doing work on Japanese knotweed, a good bit of it, like research-based project to find out, you know, how bad is the plant? To, how do you tackle it safely? And we wanted to be able to teach people how to, how to deal with this invasive species in a community setting. Because to us, it seemed that everyone was really hyped up about wanting to eradicate this plant and kill it. And, but yet people didn't necessarily know anything about the plant. So in, in that piece of research, we were also looking at some other invasive plants that are in community settings that people don't want, you know, for reasons like you've outlined, Finbar. And one of them was, the, was hogweed. And there is an invasive species plant called giant hogweed. And it, it's highly toxic if you get the sap of it on your skin and that sunlight shines on it, then you get really seriously bad blistering. If you got it in your eyes, you could go blind, like, good chance you will and you know people have learned about this plant the hard way and we have it in ireland as an invasive species we also have common hogweed and they do look very similar to each other there's the main difference is a size difference but you know common hogweed or giant hogweed isn't born a giant right it grows into a giant so you could different phases of the life cycle mistake the two and like i was struck that time that it's like i think uh, I, I don't know how much science was behind this or was it ever even looked into in terms of research in Ireland, but I think a, a common hogweed got a really bad name for itself and I, I suspect there's a lot of people going around because killing it, wrongly assuming that it was the giant hogweed because, you know, 99 times out of 100, if you see hogweed plant in Ireland, it's not giant hogweed, it's common hogweed. And because it is so common then, it's a, it was pointed out to me by an ecologist a few years ago when I was doing work experience at college, that this is one of the most important countryside plants for wildlife. Because it's so common, it supports a huge range of insects. And if you ever see common hogweed, look at it. Um, there are, it's thriving with life. Um, it, that's a real interesting family of plants like those villiferaceae, as they're referred to, because they look like, um, the flower heads look like an umbrella. That's why I remember it. But uh, that whole family of plants, there's all there's edibles, marvelous edibles. There's unbelievably poisonous plants. They're they're the kind of real hard crow group, I think. Yeah. That is a hard group. One of the, the most, yeah, it's um, Apiaceae. It, they've changed the name now. It used to be Umbelliferae. Now it's Apiaceae. But it's those, yeah, the big heads of white flowers, hundreds and hundreds of white flowers that look like an umbrella most of the time. Uh, and one of the plants. Would, the most deadly native Irish plant is in that group, but so are carrots and things that you can pick and eat. So that's why I always urge people to be cautious about what they're eating. Uh, but funnily enough, on the thing about the giant hogweed and the blistering, I would talk to people about that and they'd say, with the, the, the common hogweed, if they go out stripping it in the summer with shorts on, that they used to get welts as well, you know, be really badly affected. And some people are, there is a similar compound in the common hogweed and some people are more affected by it. So my advice in that case was don't go out cutting it in the summer. Um, Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And Finbar, it's a real interesting thing and it, it brings up that there's so much about plants we don't know. So if, if you go to read up scientific knowledge, um, maybe if you go way into the depths of scientific research there, you might find different. But from my trawling through stuff, I actually, some around that time, ended up looking into was there an issue with the common hogweed as well causing the blistering, like you're saying, because we had anecdotal reports from people that were working in community settings, uh, people that were on two uh, placements in particular, that this had happened to them. And from what we've seen looking into it, it does seem like that's right, but it, there's very little information out there on it, on the common hogweed. Well, the common hogweed, it's, it's, it's good to eat. The very small little um, shoots when they first arrive, it's a really aromatic, delicious plant to eat. But all the, the um, foraging books do say that you should pick it with gloves. So it's fairly common knowledge, I think, among foragers that it can cause blistering. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's the combination of sunlight and whatever yeah. your metabolites, your metabolites they have in there. Uh, and Finbar, you were referring to earlier the, the real deadly plant 
it isn't the giant hogweed, it's the hemlock, uh, hemlock water, water droplet. Yeah. Yeah. But there's another um, water droplet then as well, and it's very poisonous also. There's a few different water droplets. There's hemlock. There's hemlock water droplet, and that is, as far as I know, the most uh, poisonous one. There are other water droplets as well. Oenanthes. There's Oenanthe aquaticum, and another one that I can't think of the name of right off the top of my head. I don't think they have the same levels of poisons in them. Less common than the hemlock water droplet. Now, is hemlock water droplet the one that produces these really big bulbous roots that people sort of dig up and think are good potato substitutes? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, you'll generally only find this in really wet places. The hogweed is easy to identify. Everything else in that family is you, you need to know what you're doing. So I tend to stay away from them other than hogweed. Well, I suppose a good way is, you know, some they come out at certain times of the year as well, or they're in particular habitats. They are, they can be bewildering, but then again, the yellow asters can be bewildering. It's just maybe think this year, this year, I'm just going to look at that particular plant. Not for a beginner, but somebody who's maybe started looking at plants for a year or two. Mm. It's just at the start of the year, so I'm going to do willow herbs and these umbellifers. I'm going to try and, get, try and get a hand on those. I'll look at other stuff as well, but these are going to be my plant for this year. That's what I've done in the past. And I haven't been identifying plants for an awfully long time. It's only like the past 10 years. Uh, and that's what I've done, I think, you know, because you just look at them and you think, this is unsurmountable. I've got to look. Yeah. In just this one group, there are so many. And then there's all these other groups. It's just break down into little chunks. This year, I'm going to do these ones. And can I ask, is hemlock, is it the same as um, the others where you touch it and it's, it, it hurts? Or is it one that when you eat it, it's dangerous or both? See, that's the thing about the common names, because there's hemlock water dropwort, which is, I think, any part of it, if you ingest it or if it gets into your bloodstream, you know, you're gone. And then there's hemlock as well. I think you actually have to ingest that. Um, and they're in the same family, but they've got very different scientific names. Um, so Conium maculatum is hemlock, Oenanthe crocatus, hemlock water dropwort. But ingesting... I only, I only, yeah, I only learned about the giant hogweed this year, actually, um, in my, my master's degree. So we went out to see it, um, and they're, they're so tall, taller than any of us. And we were walking through. Now, I had like boots on but I had were exposed and we were walking through it and the man was like no anything about it so I was like stepping around the plants um and he's talked to us about it and when the other students just grabbed grabbed a hold of the the giant hogweed but thankfully they'd already treated it at this point so the stem was dead um but yeah I never remember all of us just kind of stopped and looked and we we're like, I I is he okay? Is, is everything all right? And they're like, no, it's, it's been treated. It's fine. But they were saying it's very difficult to tell the difference. So I know myself, if I went out, I wouldn't know the difference unless it was in like a full bloom state, really. Yeah. 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 No, I've seen them. And when you see them fully grown, it is like the day of the triffids. Yeah. You know, they're gigantic. But I think you actually have to get some of the sap on your skin um, for it to cause that reaction. So just talking again about starting out and identifying, um, was there a book that you used, Finbar, when you were just starting out, or what resources did you use? When I first started learning about wild plants, it's going to sound weird, is I did it in the depths of winter when there were no plants around. Um, I got, now I'm not sure I'd recommend this for everybody, it's, it's, it's an Irish flora, it's a really old copy, so you've only got plants that you'll find in Ireland. And then I took this book, beginning to end, with the aid of a website. Now, there's two websites in Ireland. There's one called Irish Wildflowers, and there's another one called Wildflowers of Ireland. And they've literally got so many different ways of looking at the plants. You can look at them by color. You can look at them by common name. You can look at them by family. You can look at them by what's flowering outside now. So I literally went through this book, A to Z, looked at the picture of the plant and just did that a couple of times over a winter. 
but that's the thing is because they're grouped into families so you think oh look all these asteraceae look kind of the same so you you sort of learn to even though you don't know what the plant is you get an idea of what family so you know what buttercups look like so yeah that's how i did it that's how i taught myself to identify plants with this book and a website that's a great project for winter and then the spring you are out there then you go out and you try and hopefully something has sunk in over the winter yeah it's funny isn't it like I think though what what everyone has in common, I'm stating obvious, is just to have an interest in the plants. And like unless you have that, then you know it's a, it's an absolute chore to have to try to learn about it. Well, there was a question I wanted to ask you guys just before it, it got on mine, talking about this knowledge that is passed down. What is the one wildflower knowledge, piece of knowledge that everyone knows that you come across? I wonder if it's the same for me, is that Dock is used to treat nettle stings. Everyone, any yeah, walk yeah. I go on, mm-hmm. everyone knows it. The old people, you know, moms and dads and the kids, everyone knows it. That's true. Yeah, that would be my earliest thing is, and I, I don't know if there's anything in docks or if it's just that it distracts you from the fact that you've got a nettle sting if you're rubbing a leaf against your leg or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, that would be, I. yeah, everybody, all the kids I knew growing up, that was... We all knew that. If yeah. you get a nettle sting, you rub a duck on it. It's, and it's supposed to be not true, right? Um, what's the... It's supposed to be a placebo effect. That's what I've... Uh, well, also since. just rubbing something cooling and it, it takes your mind mm. away. Apparently, plantain is much better because it actually does contain something in it. But it's just... I was always struck by that. It was like, you guys know this. Do you know how ancient this knowledge is that's just been passed down forever and I just think, God, how much have we missed and lost that could have been passed down? Do we have to be stung yeah. by a plant to remember it? But there's, there's lots that we could still learn that maybe ancestors never knew. There's that part oh, yeah. too, like looking forward. But did you, um, actually, Des Bishop, the comedian, did a sketch about that, about the docks and the nettles. <laughs> now come to remember, he was on about being a kid and uh, moving over from America. Of course, I probably won't be funny telling this now, but how he was playing a game of soccer and the ball went out. Did you, you've heard this joke, Rachel, have you? The ball went out into the, uh, out of the pitch and he had Ali, to go get it. it. Yeah, and all the kids were like, watch the nettles, watch the nettles, watch the nettles. And Des didn't know what the nettles were and he got all stung by the nettles. And then they were like, get yourself a dock, you just get a dock. And he doesn't know what a dock is or a nettle is coming over from America, but it's common knowledge to everyone in the playground, docks and nettles. That's another interesting thing is, Karen, you talk about the history that's been lost to some extent regarding, you know, the medicinal uses of plants that we just don't know anymore. The other thing I suppose to think is what we're losing in the future, potentially, as we lose species in terms of the medicines that, that could be there for treating diseases that we'll never know because we'll lose them. Um, I remember going on a walk in the woodlands with a woman years ago and we were looking at a liverwort, um, a tiny little plant, I think it was, I can't, remember the, I can't even remember the name of it, but in this tiny little plant, tiny, and it only grows in woodlands, there was a treatment for leukemia. Wow. Uh, you know, but it's a tiny, the tiniest little liverwort. It's, it's not a plant, it's more like a moss. Um, these things, if we don't look after, and we've got so few woodlands in Ireland, we know that the Amazons are being felled at such a tremendous rate each year. What are the things that could be there to help us in the future that we'll have lost before we've ever had a chance to hand it down to anybody? That's a good point, yeah. And liverworts are um, one of the ones that are being lost at a quite a high rate, aren't they? I'm not sure, but this one particularly hasn't associated with woodlands and woodlands are being lost, so... Yeah, and, and, and all our wildflowers from Barrett, you know, on that somber note, that somehow we've managed to, as a society, generally speaking, get it in our heads that the pretty beauty is prim and proper. You know, a lawn is meant to be green and green only. And a good farmer's field is one that only has ryegrass in it and a bit of clover maybe. And the idea of the floral diversity in the places that we live, that we work, that we farm, that we do whatever, 
that idea, like the the value in that, I think, is almost being lost. Like that, I think my feeling on it is that the more diversity of floral life that we can have everywhere we live, the better we all are. Whether that's on your driveway or on your school grounds or your business premises or wherever else, because there's just so much wildflowers offer us. Like, and if only we could get everybody to to feel that way about wildflowers, that they value them because of the medicinal use or how pretty they are or how great they are to engage your kids with nature, whatever it is, we'd be on a winner because certainly, I mean, in Ireland across the last century or so, and that's just why we have things like the All Ireland Pollinator Plan now, because we're trying to make up for the mass destruction we've been causing in our landscape where we're getting rid of all these places where wildflowers live, whether we're digging up old meadows and converting it to a car parking zone or we're using Roundup herbicide on the you know the sides of road verges, whatever we're doing. I think a lot of the time we need to stop and think about what we're doing. Do we really need to do this? Why are we doing this? And would a place be a bit prettier if we just allowed wild plants back into these places? Um, because I look, I'm biased on this, but the reason I'm biased on this is I've got a lot of experience with wildflowers in my life being around me, and I know their value. And I think that if everyone was um, engaged and immersed in wildflowers more, we would all be much better off. Definitely. Kind of a shift towards wildflowers now, though. And that's actually something I really liked about the video, your the garden series, was, Karen, when you were talking about the thistle in your garden, because native weeds are one of the best providers of nectar in early spring for pollinators, particularly bees. And because they're, you know, considered a bit unsightly people don't like them but weeds are so they're so productive and they're so helpful but yeah people just see them and they think oh daisies as well they just think oh they're they're off looking and they mow them and get rid of them but really if we kind of just shift the perception on them people will see that they're, they're lovely and they're really helpful and there's a lot that we can actually get from them yeah, well, that was a shift that I had to make. I mean, just going back to Will said, I saw them as like, oh, no, there's too many. I didn't mind a few thistles, but there was just so many thistles. It was just all thistles. I was like, you know, I, I wanted all those those lovely little flowers. I wanted lots of different Irish wildflowers. But then that summer when they were full of insects and full of butterflies, I was like, yeah, you know, this is why we have them. And they're great. So now it is full of thistles and I'm thrilled when I see the thistles coming up. I'm happy. But it took a shift, you know, it did take a shift for someone who is supposed mm. to be all about nature and all about wildness. It took a shift for me. So, yeah, I, I can understand it, it's going to take a shift for other people as well. Yeah. And, you know, things aren't always black and white, as we've got to accept as well, because there's there's a field near where I live and the way it's managed, it's not really managed. It's just animals graze it and... Uh, like later on in the summer now if you saw these fields they just ragworts and thistles just grow on and it's there's loads of seed blowing in the wind so this the seed from the ragwort and the thistles blow into my property and so I'm constantly having to be on the lookout for ragworts and thistles and I'm trying to manage a meadow in my own place in a way that might be acceptable to farmers no no I'm not a farmer but I'm just testing it out you know and I have challenges with the thistles and with the with the with the docks as well and, and also with the ragwort. But um, you know, what I've been doing with the thistles is I actually am letting them grow where it's appropriate. But before they go to seed, I know now something else will eat their seed. So I just let them grow for their floral beauty in certain places and that the insects can forage on nectar. But I try not to let them go to seed then. I have my reasons I outlined. And there are other areas, right? Like in my lawn, I don't want the thistles coming in the lawn. And same with the, the area where the swings are, where the kids, I don't want thistles there because we'd be walking around in our bare feet. That's not nice. So I don't think any of us are on the business of black and white, whether we're, you know, when we're managing things for wildlife, there's, there's, you'd love to leave everything grow on. Um, but you can't always. And the circumstances, you know, the reasons why something's left grow in one place and not in the other it can be different circumstances. So just I'd like to add on that point that with ragwort, 
and same with thistles and docks. So these are classed as noxious weeds. Technically speaking, it's illegal to have them growing in places. You're meant to keep them cut. But we all know that doesn't really happen in reality. I mean, they grow wild in lots of places. But the ragwort is one that when you leave it grow on, if it's accepted somewhere, it's such an amazingly beautiful flower. It provides so much for nature. Uh, but when you see the cinnabar moth uh, crawling around, eating the ragwort, it's like the whole, to me, it's like a symbol of the whole circle of life and the ecological system properly working. It's amazing. And so many places, you know, cinnabar moths don't get the chance to munch on ragwort leaves. But it's really nice to let that happen when you can. And somewhere we do that is actually right outside the CCAD premises. There's a meadow that we manage right out there. There is some ragwort grow, um, but it is nowhere near farmland. So there's no fear of any seed blowing to somewhere it's not wanted at all. And funny enough, like because the way we manage the meadow in particular, because the ground isn't trampled on too much, the ragwort hasn't really taken hold. So there's only ever, this is across five years we've been doing it, there's only ever four or five plants. But we have the cinnabar moth population there. It's wonderful. Yeah, the, the cinnabar moth is the sort of black and red, beautiful colour. The is the killer is yellow-black striped. And if you look yeah. closely at the, the, the flower of ragwort, the, the tips of it, there's the yellow flower, but there's also these black stripes on it. It's just amazing the way they, yeah. they both look so similar and for completely different reasons. Funny enough, Finbar, actually, that's, what, that's me now talking in pure kind of uh, colloquial terms. When I'm talking about cinnabar moths, I'm actually talking about the caterpillars. <laughs> but, uh, that's what I'm on about. And you, the moths come out too, but the caterpillars, yeah, they're crazy. So, like, insert the word caterpillar for every reference to a moth there a few minutes ago. Yeah, it's again, it's one of those things where, you know, plants are specific to a particular insect, like we talked about the, the cuckoo flower and the orange tip uh, butterfly earlier, and the ragwort and the cinnabar moth. It's an important thing about the wildflowers that I, I like to bring up to people because, of course, when we think about flowers, we think about the pollinators and the pollinator plant has done great work in raising awareness of that. But I like to raise awareness of the fact that all these wildflowers are food for lots of other insects and usually the baby insects, which are so important. I think that gets a bit lost in, you know, promoting pollinators. But, you know, the more wildflowers we have, Due to the pollinators, the more wildflowers there'll be and the more food there is for baby insects, the, the caterpillars. And the more caterpillars there are, the more food there is for birds, the more food there is for everything. You know, it's, it's just, it, it, it just keeps on giving. Because basically plants are, they're the base of our food chain. And the variety of them is what gives us the variety of everything that develops from that. So to lose diversity in plants means that we're losing diversity all the way up the, 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 the food change. So thanks very much, guys. I think we, we've had a really interesting discussion about all things wildflowers. Um, I wanted to finish off just going back to the episode. We featured a good list of wildflowers in there, and um, I wanted to ask what your favorites were. So I'll start off. My favorite is yarrow. Um, I've learned a little bit about it last year. Um, Finbar, you'll collect, correct me on the scientific name, uh, Achillea millifolium. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. No need for so yeah. I love it because it's one of the scientific names I can remember because it is related, well, it has um, use way back to Achille, Achilles, yes. But he used it in battle to help um, stop the bleeding of wounds. You can also eat the leaves. They're a little bit bitter, but lovely in a salad. And it is great for bees. So one of my favourites. Fimbar, what's your favourite? My favourite is in that the, I was so delighted to see because I even I wasn't in flower, just the leaves made me light up when I saw it. And I always have that reaction when I see it is the Hempagrimini Eupatorium cannabinum. And there's lots of really important things that this plant has from an ecological point of view in terms of the range and amount of different insect species it supports. Also, I know that it has medical properties as well and anti-inflammatories. I suppose the main thing for me is the fact that the flowers make it look like a Muppet thing that really delights me. I just love the look of it. I think it's just, it's at least in damper places, but sometimes it's just really there. 
But it's just the fact that the flowers look like a muppet is the thing that delights me about that plant. Okay, I can't wait for it to flower now. I'm going to have to <laughs> see what that the muppet bit looked like. Which muppet? So it, it's, it has a muppet essence to it, not a particular <laughs> muppet. It's muppet-esque. Rachel, what about yourself? My favourite one was the fox glove. Just there's a lot of like memory to it when I was younger, as we discussed, you know, popping on your fingers and it's a great one for bees as well and pollinators even the other day I saw I was watching one and there was bees just going in and out and crawling in and crawling back out and they're just a lovely plant you can watch them for a long time because there's always so much activity around them and they're lovely color as well so they'd be my favorite awesome thank you well my favorite one is the wild strawberry or is it a wild strawberry I don't know still don't know when I was taking the video, I had a good idea of the wildflowers that are around. And that was one that just popped up for me. I didn't even know it was there. I don't know if you can tell that or not. And I was like, oh, it looks like a strawberry. But th there was a flower on it, that's strawberry-like flower. Uh, white, a, a member of the rose family. It had the three different leaves. So it looks very like strawberry, wild strawberries. But where it is, especially now if you see a few months on, it's in a far too shaded a place to actually be strawberry. I haven't checked since, maybe. I mean, it's underneath an ash tree and it's pretty much hidden from the sun now. And this is strawberry time of the year right now. There's actually a delicious hundred of them up in the fridge I'm going to have to munch into after this. But I love strawberries. And that particular plant, though, I've been on a journey with it since where I've been thinking, what is it? I could have asked Finbar now already a few weeks ago, but I'm holding out. Because they think it'll just come to me. Maybe it is a strawberry. I've got to check it again. But it just intrigued me at the time when I was videoing it. And it still does. And that's why it's my favourite one. And I think that's one of my favourite things about wildflowers, really, is that they intrigue me. So for me, from our episode, the strawberry, or whatever it is, is the one that has me intrigued the most. Okay, I think Finbar and I will both be going back to have a look at it. I just want to say thank you very much to Rachel. Thank you for inviting me, guys. Thank you, Finbar. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to take part in this today. And thank you, Will. Thank you very much, Karen. It's been a pleasure speaking with you guys today. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. <laughs>